0: The feasts that are held in pagan temples? Can we eat meat from the marketplace that was previously offered there to an idol in one of those temples? The Corinthians have said, We think we have the right to do those things. And here's why we think the way we think. Are we correct, Paul? It's what they were asking. And as Paul has been responding to their questions, he hasn't yet given them a direct answer. He began by challenging them about three things they needed to consider, three things they seemed to be either forgetting about or getting wrong. The first was love for their fellow Christians. They weren't thinking about how their actions might affect their brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't even factoring that in. The second thing to consider was how much of a priority should their own rights really be? granted they had rights should those rights be their top priority in life paul said no the gospel of christ ought to be top priority and if insisting on our own rights might hinder the gospel then as christians we ought to be willing to forego our rights now last week we heard paul challenge the corinthians about a third area they seem to be ignoring the need for self discipline. They seem to have lost the awareness that the Christian life is a fight. It's about resisting temptation, it's about turning away from sin. Every Christian needs the mindset of a disciplined athlete. But the Corinthians were living like they'd already received their winner's medals and arrived at the after race party. Paul said, You're getting ahead of yourselves. The race isn't over yet. The finish line is still ahead of you. You need to press on to the prize. And that calls for self discipline, not self indulgence. So instead of giving the Corinthians a yes or no answer about food sacrifice to idols, Paul has been showing them what it means to be a Christian. Instead of feeding them answers about specific situations, Paul wants to lead them to answers. He does that by teaching them how to think in a Christian way, with Christian priorities. That will help them do the right thing in every situation, not just in this one specific situation. And now, having worked hard to give them a Christian outlook, in our passages this morning... Paul is going to give them some direct answers about food sacrificed to idols. And those answers will be helpful to us, I think, as we apply what he says to our own situations. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll find that on page 1151 in the Green Church Bibles, and 1781 in the large print Bibles. We're going to read from chapter 10, verse 14, through to chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for... The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is God's word, and it splits into two sections. First, Paul says, don't try to have fellowship with demons as well as Jesus. To which you might reply, okay, there's definitely no danger of us trying to do that. So do you have any other profound, heart-searching challenges for us this morning? Because that one's pretty wide of the mark for us. It's not relevant to us at all. Well, let's just wait and see before we dismiss this challenge so confidently. Because the Corinthians would almost certainly have reacted the way we are tempted to react. We're not trying to have fellowship with demons, Paul. But whatever they thought and whatever we think, these verses are here to warn us of a very real danger. Before he even mentions demons, before they come into the picture at all, Paul begins by talking here about the Lord's Supper. This meal we're going to share later this morning, if you look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, think this through with me. Come with me step by step. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Paul is talking about the two elements of the Lord's Supper. The cup of wine representing the blood of Jesus Christ, poured out as he died on the cross. And the bread, representing the body of Christ, broken on the cross. Paul calls the cup the cup of thanksgiving because as we drink it, we give thanks to God. We bless God for his provision. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. The Bible tells us each one of us is born estranged from God. We're alienated from our Creator because of our sinful nature. Then as we grow and as we begin to make conscious decisions for ourselves, we just confirm that situation. We rebel against God and we put other things in God's place. We live for those things instead of for Him. But the message of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ came and died to bring us back to God. He died under God's curse. That was the death we deserve to die. But Jesus died that death for us. To deal with our guilt and sin by paying for it himself. And Whenever we talk about trusting Jesus or having faith in Jesus, what we mean is We believe that his death was for us. And we believe his death was enough. We're relying on his death to solve the problem between us and God. We're not hoping that our own goodness or our own efforts can solve the problem. We trust in Christ Jesus alone. And the New Testament tells us when we rely on Jesus' death, we receive the benefits of his death. Our sins are forgiven because He took them on the cross. Our guilt is gone because He paid for it on the cross. That is what it means to participate in the blood and the body of Christ. It means to receive the benefits of His death. Literally, the word is fellowship. We share in what He achieved on the cross. And that sharing in his death is symbolized in the Lord's Supper. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, they become part of us, don't they? We tick them into ourselves. And that is a picture of what happens when we trust in Jesus. The benefits of his death become part of us. We're truly forgiven, truly reconciled to God. So does that mean the bread and wine are supernatural in some way? No. No. But participating in the supper is a sign we are part of something supernatural. That's what Paul is saying in verse 16. And what that means is that this is a very serious thing. To eat the bread and to drink the wine without trusting in Jesus is a dangerous thing. Further on in chapter 11, Paul will go as far as to say, that's why some of you Corinthians have died. Because you ate the Lord's Supper in defiance of what it means. If you do that, you are truly playing with fire. Participating in the Supper is a sign of our participation in Christ's death. And so, verse 17 Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. As we join in the supper, we're testifying that we are united with all these others who are taking the supper. We're participating together in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. In verse 18, Paul says the same principle was at work back in Old Testament times as well. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Back in ancient Israel, sacrifices were offered in worship to God. Then the worshipers got to eat some of what had been sacrificed. That unavoidably linked them in to the worship that was going on. Now, Paul says, having reviewed all that and grasped all that, let's realize it works just the same way with idol worship. All that I've just said about participating in the Lord's Supper, it carries over to participating in an idol feast. Verse 19, do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons." Back in chapter 8, Paul agreed with the Corinthians when they said an idol is nothing at all in the world. Sure, it's a piece of wood, it's a piece of stone. He agreed with them when they said there is no God but one. Of course, it's true. Yes, an idol is just a statue. Yes, pagan gods are not gods at all. But there are many supernatural powers in this world. There's only one God, but there are many spiritual beings. And worship that is directed to idols is in fact worship of spiritual beings. Just as the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper is just bread and wine, but participating in the meal is participating in supernatural realities. So, idol meat is just meat. But joining in the meal is joining in with different supernatural realities. Paul says it's worshiping demons, spiritual forces that are hostile to God. They're definitely not on a level with God. He stands above all other powers, but demons are hostile to him. That's why the Bible pinpoints demons as the instigators of false worship. They love to see God being denied the worship that's due to him. And so they work to deflect our worship, to direct it away from God. Wasn't that what Satan was trying to do with Jesus when we read earlier? Demons encourage us to give worship to things that are not God. Might be little statues maybe It might be just about anything so long as the worship is going to something that's not God. So Paul wants us to see we haven't settled the matter when we say an idol is nothing. We haven't settled the matter when we say there's no God but one. Those things are true. But if we are participating in idol worship of any kind, Paul says we're participating in demon worship. We are actually worshiping spiritual powers that are hostile to God. So the Lord's Supper is just bread and wine. But if you participate in that supper, if you join in, you're participating in Christ's death. And you become one with others who eat the supper. An idol feast is just meat and two veg. But if you participate in that feast, if you join in, you participate in demon worship. And you become one with the others who eat the feast. So the Corinthians have their answer. Skip your burger and chips at Apollo's temple. Don't even mess with false worship. As we think about how this might apply to us, Remember, this would have been shocking to the Corinthians. The Pope would even entertain the notion they might be engaging in idolatry. They were proud to be known as people who worship the one true God. And yet, they've just heard, by refusing to take idolatry seriously, they are in danger of worshiping demons. And for you and me, yes, I'm very sure... None of us would ever bow down to a statue. But there are a thousand other ways to participate in idolatry. To treat something that's not God as if it is God. How do we know we're doing that? How might we begin to suspect we're doing that? Well, Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. That's a good definition of idolatry. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. So idolatry is as easy for you and me as it was for the ancient Israelites. It's as easy for you and me as it was for the first century Corinthians. So we need this same reality check. We need our eyes reopened to the fact that any time we let our hearts be drawn away from God, we are participating in the work of demons. The idol might be money. It might be a, a frantic grasping after security. It might be the tireless search for human affirmation. It might be the deep longing for an easy life. Just kick these responsibilities away. It might be a grasping after power and authority. But behind every idol is a demon. Rejoicing to redirect the worship that actually belongs to God. And remember, the focus here is on participating with others, being part of a worshiping group. So think about this. Have you ever been in a situation where it has begun to dawn on you, I don't belong in the middle of this? There's a spiritual power at work here, and it's not the Holy Spirit of God. Maybe it's a situation where the spirit is one of wild self-gratification. People abandoning themselves to drunkenness and lust. Hooking up with whoever. Who is being worshipped in that situation? And if you're part of it, what is it you are participating in? Or it might be a much more respectable situation. But what is actually being celebrated is the ability to make money, maybe. Maybe that's what is being worshipped. Spending power. Or just the accumulation of power. Have you ever been to a business conference like that? Where the whole atmosphere is just heavy with idolatry? What about the things your friends and family like to watch? Are they into horror? Have you stopped to think? When the things that are being celebrated are fear and mutilation and depravity, maybe there's another spirit at work rather than the spirit of Christ. Do you want to be part of that? As Christians, there are some situations, there are some environments we just should not be part of. So how do we develop the kind of instinct and sensitivity that we need so we begin to recognize what those environments are? The way to develop that instinct is to develop intimacy with our Savior and His sacrifice. The more we enter into fellowship with Him, the more we will sense the times and the places where we just don't belong. Look how Paul puts it in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he When the Bible speaks about God's jealousy, it speaks about his proper concern to protect his exclusive relationship with his people. Just like a good husband has a proper jealousy to protect his marriage. He's not easygoing when other lovers try to muscle in on his marriage. He doesn't throw open the door and welcome rivals into his house. Doubly so if the rival has announced their intention to steal his wife. That's how God is jealous of his relationship with his covenant people. He doesn't welcome other lovers. He doesn't rejoice to see us snuggling up to other lovers. That kind of behavior makes a mockery of our worship of him. And it does cost to move away from the table of demons. You might offend people if you excuse yourself and leave. Or if you don't take the invitation in the first place. That was true for the Corinthians. In Corinth, idol feasts were the places for social networking. For social climbing to skip those kind of situations put you at genuine risk of missing out socially. But Paul says, which table do you most want to be at? You have to choose. Don't try to have fellowship with demons as well as Jesus. And secondly in this passage, Don't think you can glorify God while being careless about others. If the first section dealt with the vertical, our relationship with God, this deals with the horizontal, our relationship with others. Paul quotes one of the Corinthians' slogans, I have the right to do anything. He's quoted this before back in chapter 6. And here he says that slogan is lacking in something crucial. You can't just think about yourself. Look at verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And as he then explains that, Paul starts just like he did in the first section. He starts with something good, something that glorifies God. Verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. So we're no longer dealing with an idolatrous event at a pagan temple. Now we're dealing just with a slab of steak bought in the marketplace. Paul says, look, it was God's cow in the first place. It's God's meat. So don't worry about what idol it might have been waved in front of. Just fry it up or braise it or barbecue it, whatever you want. Enjoy it as a good gift from God. Verse 26 is a quote from Psalm 24. The Jews would often use that as a prayer before their meal, much like many of us do. Paul says, say thanks to God and tuck into what's in front of you. If an unbeliever invites you around for dinner, take just the same approach. Don't worry about where the meat came from. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But then Paul goes on to say, if the person selling you the meat or serving you the meat, if they tell you it's been waved in front of an idol, then don't eat it. Why? Why is it okay to eat when you don't know the history of the meat, but not okay when you do? I think Paul assumes the other person knows that you are a Christian. And when they tell you where the meat has been, it's because they want to see where you stand. If you hear the meat has been part of an idol ceremony and you eat it anyway, they will interpret that as support for idolatry. Whatever you might mean by what you're doing, that's how they'll interpret it. And they'll either get confused about idolatry and think it's no big deal, or they will accuse you of being inconsistent. You Christians are just like everyone else. You don't really stand for anything. If we have that understanding in our head, I think we can make sense of verses 28 to 30 which seem a bit confusing when we first read them. Paul says, But if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? In other words, yes, maybe as far as I'm concerned, it's just a piece of meat I'm eating. And I'm free to eat it. I thank God for it. But if the other person takes it as a sign, I don't care about idolatry, then God is actually being dishonored if I eat. And that's not what I'm trying to achieve. My desire is to glorify God. So, verse 30, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? If I truly want to give glory and thanks to God, why would I insist on eating the meat When the result is going to be, the other person will denounce me and the God I claim to worship. They'll assume my God is just one among many. The point is, what matters is glorifying God. That's more important than me getting to eat what I like. So yes, if it's just me or me and my family and we can afford some meat from the market, we will thank God for it. And we will glorify God by enjoying it because we know it came from Him. But if someone uses meat as a way to find out what Christians believe and how much they value their God, then because glorifying God is what matters, I'll pass on the meat rather than be taken as an idolater. What Paul is saying is, if I really care about glorifying God, I will not be careless about others. I will do what I can to see God honored in the eyes of others, even if I have to go without some things in the process. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Notice Paul's desire to please everyone in every way is not a blank check. He wants to please them in every way that glorifies God. Some people would be very pleased if we never spoke about Jesus at all. But Paul is not suggesting we go along with that. The principle here is consider others in ways that glorify God. How might this apply to us? I'll choose just a couple of examples. Ladies, you may believe you have the freedom to dress however you want. And maybe you're right. But are you willing to give up dressing in certain ways if those ways make others stumble? Are you willing to consider others in that way? If you're not, do you really care about glorifying God? We could say the same thing about pictures that you post online. What might be appropriate for you by yourself at home may not be appropriate for anyone else to see. And if you're not sure about your choice of clothes, ask a mature Christian lady. She'll help you out. Man, what about our political views? I know this applies equally to ladies, but I'll direct this to man just to even it up. Most of us know exactly what should go on with Brexit, don't we? We're clear on whether Brexit's a good thing or a bad thing. And we know the people who disagree with us are totally wrong. In fact, they might even be stupid. And maybe we're right about all of that. But are we willing to tone down our political opinions because we know they might make other people stumble? Are we willing to consider others in that way? If we're not, do we really care about glorifying God? Comments that might be totally appropriate when it's just you in front of your TV, they might not be appropriate for your work colleagues to hear about from you. Or for the person next to you in church, to hear about from you? We could mention plenty of other examples, but each of us has to do a little bit of work to personalize this. Are there ways we are being careless of others? And what might that say about our desire to glorify God? As Paul closes this section, he brings it all together in chapter 11, verse 1, which is the close of the section. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So all that we've heard from Paul in this passage, it's not Paul's bright idea. It is the pattern that was laid down by our Savior. It's the pattern he lived by. When Satan, the prince of demons, offered Jesus the world, if only Jesus would bow down and worship Satan, what did Jesus say? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus didn't mess with idolatry. He didn't try to worship in two directions at once. And Jesus was able to say to his Father in heaven, I have brought you glory on earth. How did Jesus do that? He did it by showing the greatest ever consideration of others. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, our Savior, is also our example. He turned his back on idolatry and he considered others, all for the glory of God. Johann Sebastian Bach was both a great composer and a devout Christian. And he always signed the bottom of his work with the letters SDG which stands for the Latin phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be glory. Those letters appear at the end of his serious works, like the St. Matthew Passion, and those letters appear at the end of his lighthearted works, like his coffee cantata. Believe it or not, he uh, enjoyed coffee so much, he wrote a 25-minute cantata about it for the glory of God, who invented coffee. Biographers also tell us Bach took a soli deo gloria approach to his family life. He was a faithful husband and father. He was as focused on glorifying God in his family life as he was in his public life. And that's what all of us are called to as followers of Jesus Christ, to live every part of our life for the glory of God alone. So that at the end of our life, those three little letters could be written at the end of our life. We're going to recommit to live in that way in God's strength as we sing together, "Solely, Deo Gloria.